Canucks begin their post-trade deadline schedule with a major challenge in Colorado. It is the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks on a game day. I'm Jamie Dodd, joined as always by my co-host, Canucks insider Thomas Drance, who you can also read covering the team at The Athletic. Drancer is on the road with the team in Colorado, got to take in their morning skate today. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Drancer, your first time, uh, if I'm not mistaken, on the road for a while here. How's it feel? Oh, it's good. It's nice to be back uh, covering, you know, it's nice to be back covering team the road the way it should be you get a lot of time to get a sense of things interact with people that you wouldn't otherwise usually get to get to do especially at home where there's more media and things are a little bit more tightly controlled and I'm, I'm fascinated to see how the Canucks play tonight you know Yaroslav Halak looks like he's getting the start so the team's obviously taking their best shot putting their best foot forward against Minnesota I think you can understand how that makes some sense but it's really important that Halak plays the whole game right they he has to he has to hang in there and the Colorado Avalanche look like both of their new acquisitions, Cogliano and uh, Arturi Lekkinen, in the lineup. Some question about whether or not they were going to be able to get Lekkinen's, you know, immigration work across the line. They have. He was on the ice for morning skate. Uh, looks like he'll make his Avalanche debut tonight. So the rich get richer, the fast get faster, and the Colorado Avalanche have only lost seven. So a uh, big test, big test. Yeah, to say the least, a massive challenge for the Canucks against the Avalanche. Arguably the best team in the NHL. Certainly one of the fastest, one of the most skilled. We've talked a lot about the difficulty that uh, fast teams in particular compose for the Canucks, even when they're not the most talented teams. Well, the Colorado, <laughs> they check both boxes. Extremely talented uh, and extremely fast as well. So it's going to be fascinating to see how the Canucks respond to that tonight. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Get your thoughts and your questions in, and we'll hit them up throughout the course of the show. So I do want to talk more about Yaro Halak getting the start because Halak's situation has been the focus of a lot of conversation here, obviously in large part in relation to the trade deadline and whether the Canucks would be able to find uh, a partner, find a destination for him. Obviously they weren't able to do that because of the complexity of his contract situation, but also just his play, right? And it, it is, it's, it's interesting that they're giving him the start against Colorado tonight, but I also think this is going to be a storyline down the stretch, Trancer, is how the Canucks manage the goaltending workload for the remaining 18 games of this season. We'll talk a little bit about how the playoff race is shaping up right now. You know, of course, mathematically still very much alive. And Bruce Boudreaux said, hey, we're treating every game as if it's must win. The only people counting us out are on the outside, which is exactly what you expect to hear at this time of year from a team in the position of the Canucks. But I did think the other thing that was interesting from Bruce Boudreaux, and he, he's not wrong when he points this out, that... You know, Yaro Halak has basically only had two poor games this year. Now, they were very, very poor, and they came at the ve a very bad time, and they obviously really shook the confidence the team had in Halak, which is why we haven't seen him uh, much at all in recent weeks. But it it's not as if this year has been a beginning-to-end disaster for Yaroslav Halak, and I think there is still a chance that they are able to get some decent, performances from him down the stretch and maybe lighten the load of Thatcher Demko a little bit in the final 18 games of the season. 
Well, you need to lighten the load of Thatcher Demko in the final 18 games, regardless of how Halak plays. Now, maybe if he doesn't make it through a game, you consider carrying three goaltenders. But particularly in the event that the Canucks playoff hopes continue to fade, right? And and as we speak today, they're at 7% playoff odds, according to Dom LeCision's model. The Western Conference playoff picture is looking pretty settled, to be honest with you. It's going to take something pretty special from... What? Well, I didn't say Panthers. I think he's Dom, just he's yeah, just Dom decision. No, it's oh, Dom decision. Oh, okay. There we go. There we go. Fair enough. Um, the <laughs> I didn't realize the bell applied to anything else. I think we have to go over this bit. We're, we're expanding um, the bingo, the, the bingo board. Yeah, uh, the bingo sheet. Okay, I just so, get one row, one row on the bingo board. That's all I do for the dings. <laughs> so it's going to take something pretty special for Vegas to get back in. I mean, you think about the fact that they're a point back of Dallas, and Dallas has. Four games in hand on them. Vegas is facing an uphill climb with only 16 games remaining and a trade that hasn't yet been approved three days after the NHL trade deadline and probably won't end up going through. Um, Kind of a disaster, a cataclysm, to be totally honest, considering what we believe about Vegas' true talent and what their ambition was going into this season. Um, Dom decision, if you combine the playoff probabilities of Vancouver, Winnipeg, Vegas, and San Jose, who has a 1% shot still, according to Dom Decision's model, it totals 48%. So the model suggests that it is more likely that the current eight teams make the playoffs than that anyone else upsets the apple cart. Everyone currently in a playoff spot in the West has 80% odds or better. So we're, we're looking at this moment where things look pretty settled. And for the Canucks, I think if you want to... Even come back from the wrote this road trip with seven percent playoff odds, just like a chance at a chance. You need to go three and one. Anything less than three and one is basically it. That's over. And so you know tonight's game against a team that's only dropped seven of their last forty-eight at home looms very large, particularly with the lock-in net. And I do think if this week does not go in the Canucks' favor, almost uniformly, that you know, approaching things with an eye toward making sure that Pedersen's ready to work out and have a good summer, making sure that Oliver Ekman Larson's not, you know, wasting minutes in his age 30 season that, you know, could be higher leverage down the road, making sure that Thatcher Demko's not overworked. Like all of those things will begin to take on a greater degree of importance unless this team can reel off a series of wins on a gauntlet road trip. Yeah, and it's it's such a difficult road trip and early in the season, or if the Canucks hadn't dug themselves in such a deep hole, you'd be looking at these four games right back to back with Colorado and Minnesota, then Dallas, then St. Louis, all very difficult teams. You'd be looking at it and saying, hey, 500, really good result. But the Canucks are just running out of runway to to make this miracle run, right? And eventually, you have to start bending that points percentage upwards. And if you go 500 over a four-game stretch, I mean, you're really looking at that, – that'd leave them 14 games remaining, and you're looking at what? You know, 12-2 and two in those 14 games if you go 500 here? So you're right. It does have to be 3-1. and one. And just in general, I mean, you look at the standings. As you said – it does feel like we're starting to have a very good picture of who is going to make the playoffs 
in the Western Conference. So the Canucks have 18 games remaining, right? 68 points, 14 and 4 gets them to 96. That's probably where you have to get to because they don't hold the tiebreaker uh, against the teams they're chasing. And now Dallas and Edmonton have kind of put themselves in a position where they can probably go 500, just slightly above 500, get to 95 points, get to 96 points, and feel extremely comfortable. Whereas Vegas, Vancouver, I mean, certainly Winnipeg, they have to do something really, really special uh, down the stretch. It is kind of funny, funny because, you know, the Canucks have, not on this road trip, but immediately following it, uh, they have those three games in quick succession with the Vegas Golden Knights. And I remember it wasn't that long ago where there was a lot of hype. Like, hey, those three games could decide the playoff race here. Those are If they win those three games, they're in business. And now all of a sudden you could sweep those games. And it might not even matter because Vegas isn't the team you're chasing in the West anymore. Oh, it- it could end up being the competition to see who finishes ninth, right? I mean, very, very possible. Or or those wins are part of one of the team's stories that, you know, they swept through and managed to carve out a spot for them in the playoffs. Could you imagine it being Colorado right now, by the way? And you're thinking, like, there's a chance that our first round opponent is Vegas? Can you imagine that? <laughs> it's like, not, what, a, not ideal. You have this you have the season they had. And your two most likely playoff opponents, like one is Dallas, a team that beat you in the playoffs a couple of years ago, right? And and that plays a style with a relatively mobile defense core that, you know, probably isn't your best matchup, right? Frankly. And, or you're facing the Vegas Golden Knights who on true talent are the second or third best team in the entire Western Conference. I mean, ridiculous. Ridiculous. It's a very, very Vancouver bumping into Chicago in the first round in 2011 vibes there. I will say, though, and as we're just kind of, I mean, Vegas, look, we'll get back to the Canucks in the Colorado game. The Vegas situation to me is one of the most fascinating situations in the NHL right now because of the Dadenov trade, because of all the assets they've expended and the cap they've tied up to chase the Stanley Cup this year. And the other team that I think is probably playing really close attention to the Vegas situation is the Calgary Flames, right? Because if Vegas does fall out of the playoffs, all of a sudden the Pacific Division is wide, wide open. And I mean, when you look at the, the the gap in quality that Calgary has opened up between them and the other Pacific Division playoff teams, they must be absolutely licking their chops for the chance to, if, to, you know, at the possibility that Vegas falls out and all of a sudden their path to the conference finals. It's never easy. You still got to win both of those rounds. But all of a sudden, uh, Calgary looks like it could have a very comfortable path to the final four in the NHL playoffs. Well, as comfortable as it gets, anyway. As comfortable as it gets, exactly. <laughs> it's never easy, right? Because you, as you say, you know, you still have to play Dallas or Nashville or something, right? And that that's – look, you don't want to uh, sleep on those teams at all. But you no. went, we went from a situation where it's, oh, Vegas is going to run away with the Pacific. Vegas is the team to beat in the, in the Pacific. And now, again, if you're Calgary, you're, you're feeling very, very good about where you sit going into the playoffs, I think. No, no question. And so we will – so we will – Look to the rest of this Canucks stretch and the rest of this Canucks road trip. And, you know, I think it's vitally important. JT Miller called this team's effort level out explicitly following both losses this past weekend. This feels like a response game, right? Like, you need to, you cannot let this look like the 7-1 loss in Colorado in November looked, right? I I would probably say that that loss was really the beginning of the end of the Benning Green era. Um, This cannot look that way. Like, they need to put forth a better effort. If you lose to Colorado and it's close, that's one thing. If you lose, but you cannot get blown out here. I know you've got Halak in net. I know you're facing the best team in the West. Uh, They're a team that matches up particularly poorly from a Vancouver perspective because 
if there's one team that's going to have literally no problem beating Vancouver's forecheck, it is Colorado. And Vancouver's forecheck no longer has its most potent, speedy forechecker in Tyler Mott, right? So this team has gotten worse. The Avs have gotten better just since Monday, and that needs to be factored in here too. Now, going to be very interesting to see how Brad Richardson holds up because I think one of my big picture takeaways as I've been looking at this on paper is this team, yes, they traded Tyler Mott, but they're also only down one top nine forward to injury, and that's Niels Hoaglander, right? This bottom six tonight will have Chason, Patan, Pod Colson, Mott, Richardson, Highmore. Oh, sorry, uh, I did Lamico. I said Mott. Lamico, Lamico. Richardson, Highmore, yeah. I, I, kept, I keep making that mistake. I like can't accept that he's gone. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, so, you know, you have to ask yourself pretty simply in just a straightforward way. Is that good enough? Is that good enough? And if you're answering yes, I think you're wrong. <laughs> so uh, the answer is no. And I do think that sort of highlights the work ahead for this franchise, right? There, there needs to be so much more depth, so much more quality grafted onto this roster. And you're going to see on the other side kind of what it looks like, how much distance you have to make up to compete with the best in the NHL. Because even if this Canucks team, you know, had four more points and we were talking about how important this road trip was from a making the playoff standpoint, we'd still be looking at this abs team with the envy due to a true contender, right? Like, like there's no way they'd match up well with them. Even if they'd, you know, had a better homestand, even if they'd beaten Detroit and Buffalo, the gap between these teams would still be massive and would still be something that for me anyway, has to shape this organization's approach to, you know, getting to the mountaintop in the years to come. I'm really curious to see what the impact of losing Tyler Mott is on this forward group. Because as you said, hey, look, Lamico and Highmore still here. They've been very, very effective in that role. But also, as you said, you're losing their best forechecker. And that line was so central into kind of establishing or at least beginning to establish this team's identity and game plan as a team that really wants to get in relentlessly on the forecheck. And if losing Mott, you know, this could be a kind of thing where it's not just a, a 10% drop in effectiveness for that line. If it's a much more significant drop in effectiveness for that line, which was really such an unexpected find for the Canucks this year... All of a sudden, you're looking at, as you said, a bottom six that you're not really expecting to get much from, right? And if, if that line and their performance was really propping up, I think, the Canucks forward group as a whole because it was such an unexpected bonus. And then you could load up the top six and get all of your skill players there and still feel really confident in at least one of your bottom six lines. If that's not the case anymore, you're absolutely right. It's going to be very difficult for them to match up against top teams like Colorado and some of the other teams they'll face down the stretch here. So that's one of my big, big questions today is just what does the forward group, what does that line look like specifically without Tyler Mott in his normal role now that he's departed from the team? Now I'll read the lines. Uh, there was no change from their last practice, but just to catch everyone up here, as they formed up at uh, the morning skate today in Colorado, it's JT Miller on the first line with Tanner Pearson and Connor Garland, Bo Horvat with Elias Pettersson and Brock Besser, Richardson, Lamico, Highmore, and then Nick Batan between the Silly Pod Colson and Alex Chason. So this is a discussion. I want to zero in on that top six group. And it makes all the sense in the world to load up. Those are your six best forwards. Get them in your top six in some combination. Try to get the most out of them. I completely understand that. But I do see Elias Pettersson playing on Bo Horvat's wing. And my initial reaction is, 
didn't we already kind of figure out that's not where Elias Pettersson belongs? And I don't just mean on Bo Horvat's wing, but on the wing in general. Haven't we already seen this year pretty clearly? And I know there was some injury stuff going on with Elias Pettersson as well, but haven't we already seen very, very clearly that Elias Pettersson is going to do his best work at center? And so that's a bit of a surprise to me. I get it. Bo Horvat's fantastic in the faceoff circle. Bo Horvat's a very good center in his own right, so maybe you don't want to move him uh, from the middle, but why not the lotto line, right? Like, why not Pedersen between JT Miller and Brock Besser? If you're looking for a spark, if you're looking to get a bunch of those guys going again, and not that JT Miller needs the help, but you could certainly say Pedersen and Besser need to find a spark again, why not at least consider that option with Elias Pedersen in his strongest position down the middle, flanked by two forwards who, in the past, he's had a lot of success in? And it, it, those two things, why Pedersen on the wing and why does the lotto line not seem to be an option for Bruce Boudreaux, those are the two big questions I have looking at this top six as they lined up at Morning Skate today. Yeah, I mean, and they're loaded questions, in my opinion, right? I think they hint at a variety of different talking points that, you know, are worth considering in terms of, you know, who who's the best fit with Pedersen? Uh, you know, is there a reason why that line hasn't played together considering that the club has explicitly cited Pedersen's friendship with Niels Hoaglander is why he was played with uh, Pod Colson and Hoaglander in the past? You know, I, I do think there's an awful lot to read into it, and I, I don't have any answers here. I'm just saying those are big questions I think posed uh, sort of naturally, Coming out of the out of the questions that you asked, why not the lotto line? Why Patterson on the wing? I think they're natural questions to ask. I also wonder, considering how this bottom six looks, why uh, if Patterson's able to play center, you wouldn't go Miller, Patterson, Horvat down the middle. It feels to me like that's your best chance, almost separating them, uh, of at least being able to hang with a team in Colorado that really is going to come at you with four really good lines, like four lines that can do legitimate damage. Um, it's going to be very interesting to see how Vancouver's bottom six forward group holds up tonight. And let's talk Dermot, too. Had yep. a lengthy conversation with him post-game, post-game, post-practice, post-morning skate. And he's definitely excited to make his Canucks debut. I do think it was hard. It's been a hard week for him in terms of the travel, in terms of getting dealt, in terms of the anxiety and stress that surrounded it. But... Dermot really does bring something that this team hasn't had, which is just a defender who can transition the puck with his feet. Other than Quinn Hughes, this team has not had another defenseman with that profile. I think having Dermot added or Dermot added to this lineup, I think it's going to make an immediate difference visually into how this team looks, and I think it's going to be such a welcome respite for those of us who've watched this team play game after game uh, with just far too little speed on the back end. Uh, Dermot is the type of player this team needs a lot more of, right? The, the good teams, the Colorado Avalanche, they have five guys who can do this. Dermot adds a second for the Canucks. It's a skirt anyway, and it's going to stick out like a sore thumb in this game tonight. That's my prediction. Well, and if there's any team where you could use a little bit of extra mobility uh, on the back end against, it's the Colorado Avalanche. And, you know, we're not suggesting that all of a sudden Travis Dermott is going to flip the script and, you know, know, completely change the dynamics of this game for the Canucks against one of the best teams in the league. But, yes, this is is a game where his skill set has a chance to shine right away. With Dermott, you know, I'm just – I'm looking forward to seeing him in a Canucks jersey for the first time tonight, seeing what that looks like, as you said, just seeing what the team looks like as a whole with a little bit of extra skating ability 
on the blue line. Dermott's interesting as well because there was so much talk right after the Canucks acquired him about his versatility, right? Left-handed shot, but totally comfortable playing both on the left and on the right. Now, when he practiced with the team, I believe he was skating on the right side with Brad Hunt. Or sorry, he was skating on the left side and Brad Hunt uh, was on the right side, which obviously Brad Hunt is a lefty shot as well. But we've also heard from Travis Dermott, hey, you know what? I actually prefer to play on the right side of the blue line. And I'm curious to see how the Canucks want to use him in that re- in that regard, right, going forward. And hey, they might not know themselves yet. They, they might just be saying, we want to get a look at you. We want to get a little bit more familiar before we decide. Because if you start to kind of map out, not just for the rest of his season, but going forward, obviously... The Canucks, they have a lot of right-handed defenders, but we also know they want to change the mix there, improve the right side of their defense. If Dermott does become somebody who's a viable option on that side, I'm curious to see where the who the natural partner is for him, right? Because you just think about it, you probably don't want him playing with Quinn Hughes because that duplicates a lot of the, the skating and the, the ability to break out that those two guys have. I'm not sure he makes sense playing with Oliver ekman Larson if that's still going to be your major shutdown heavy minutes pairing next year. And is that the role they see Dermot in? And then you get down, okay, well, could Jack Rathbone come up? But is there a lot of duplication there? I like the idea of being able to use Dermot on the right side, but I'm also not sure there's a clean fit for a partner with him on the left side if that is the direction the Canucks go. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, I think the Oliver ekman Larson fit would make some sense, particularly as a way of sort of, you know, reducing Tyler Myers' minutes uh, over the long haul. I actually would probably give that a look right now, to be totally honest with you. I don't know that Myers' OEL is with OELs sort of laboring at the moment. I don't know that that's going to get it done for the Canucks the way they need it to, the way that it did for so many weeks and months in Boudreaux's first sort of stretch at the helm for the Canucks. And, you know, I think if you're trying to manage ekman Larson's minutes a bit, you know, going going something like Hunt Myers, Shen Hughes, and then Dermott on the right side with OEL uh, would seem to me to be a relatively straightforward way to potentially manage OEL's minutes. And, and yeah, you wouldn't have sort of a top pair, like a matchup top pair. Uh, I think you'd spread it a little bit more evenly between the three pairs, but I think that's worth considering, particularly in the event that ekman Larson's form doesn't pretty visibly rebound quickly. Um, you know, if it doesn't, I do think this team needs to go into pretty express load management mode, particularly with their playoff odds fading so significantly here. Well, and and look, Oliver ekman Larson and Tyler Myers have certainly opened the door for, uh, you know, a more permanent split up of that pairing with their form recently. And again, a lot of that comes down to, as you said, OEL laboring. But this is also the time of the year where, OK, let's let's see what some different things look like. And I mean, it really just emphasizes the puzzle on this blue line is very complex, right? Making all, not just changing the pieces in and out, but trying to fit together the pieces that are currently here in a way that is efficient, the way that, you know, gets everyone with a, a partner that's going to help get the most out of them, that, that makes the minutes make sense. All of, there, there's no easy answers assembling this blue line uh, for the rest of this season and certainly going into the future. And, Look, it's something we've talked about a lot, but just more and more, it's very clear that puzzle is kind of going to be, it's going to have to be the primary focus of this front office is just figuring out a way to assemble a defense in the most efficient, most effective manner, because there's some interesting pieces here, but 
again, figuring out who plays best with who, that's going to be a, a real point of emphasis, I think, for the coaching staff and for the front office. Well, going and forward. let's not overstate, and let's not overstate how interesting the pieces are. Well, no, there's sure, a lot of sure. work to do on the back end. Absolutely, I mean, that's uh, the thing. Uh, it's it's bringing in yeah. new pieces, right, and figuring out. If, if and how you can move out some of these current pieces without having to pay uh, resources to get away from them. It's bringing in new pieces, and then it's also figuring out what to do with the pieces you have, 100%. Yeah, it's, I mean, rebuilding this blue line is a multi-year project, right? Uh, the fact is, is that this blue line was the weak, like, was the Achilles heel of the 2019-20 team, and that team also had Edler, Tanev, and Stetcher. Like, it's taken steps back since then. Right. It's actually gotten worse. And that blue line group was already being talked about as something that needed to be upgraded significantly for this team to take a step forward. Right. So, you know, the work to do on the on the back end is massive. The work to do in the bottom six is massive. And I don't think it's I I don't think you can forget either that in addition to those problems, the Canucks also need more elite talent. Right? Like they also don't have enough elite talent to, to really match up with, you know, again, you look the, the best in the league. You look across the ice tonight and you see Miko Rantanen, you see Nathan McKinnon, you know, you see Gabriel Landeskog, you see Nazem Kadri, who's basically having a, a pretty analogous season to JT Miller. Uh, in addition to everything else, right? Elite talent is also lacking. And that's why the task ahead for Rutherford and company is so, is so difficult is, is, you know, Sisyphean. Sisyphean, thank you. I I legitimately shot for the moon and missed, but at least I landed among the stars. There you go, that's right. So, Sisyphean, the task is so enormous in part because, you know, as much as we can talk about sort of these, it's not just depth, it's not just tweaks, right? There's also the need to identify and find, like, elite hockey players to take this team over the top, and that is very, very difficult. Very, very difficult yeah. to accomplish. Yeah, that's all they have to do. Find a bunch more of uh, elite hockey players. No problem, right? It's easy. It's obvious. <laughs> it's clear what yeah. the front office needs to do. Uh, we're going to take a quick break here. We'll be back on the other side. Lots of questions about Elias Pedersen and his spot in the lineup coming in. 650-650. Get your thoughts into the Dunbar Lumber text line ahead of the Canucks game against the Colorado Avalanche tonight. As a reminder, make sure you subscribe to the Canucks Hour podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review as well. Lots more Canucks talk coming up. It is a game day against the Colorado Avalanche here in your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. You know, Sisyphean. Kaboom! You've been lawyered. Welcome back to the show, Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd, my co-host, live on the road from Colorado, the Mile High City, Thomas Drantz, uh, Canucks Insider, joining me as always for the final segment of the show on a Canucks game day. As a reminder, Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. 6.30 start tonight with the game in Colorado. Uh, I will be doing pregame, intermission, and postgame with Dan Riccio as uh, Satyar Shah does his you know, TV star thing in Toronto. <laughs> of course, Batch and Hershey will have the call with you 
as always. So make sure you tune in here all day game day coverage on Sportsnet 650. Uh, Drancer, I was talking about the top six setup today and Patterson playing on the wing with Bo Horvat and Brock Besser. And, you know, my point was, haven't we pretty clearly and definitively figured out that Elias Patterson is best used at center at this point? And quite a few people texted in. Chef Swagger from Hell's Kitchen says, is it possible Patterson is on the wing because of his wrist? Uh, clearly, Patterson's wrist won't allow him to take faceoffs. That's from West End Mike. And one more unsigned says, I'm guessing PD is probably on the wing because of his possible wrist injury. And that's fair. That, that could absolutely be part of it. But again, that kind of points me back to the lotto line where we've seen Elias Patterson hand most of the responsibilities of center, uh, even though JT Miller is also there to take a lot of the draws or take all of the draws for Elias Pedersen. Again, that would seem to be a pretty logical option if I was drawing up the lines. Steven Rowe on Twitter hit us up and said, lot of line, move on. It was not a good fit stylistically with those players. JT Miller as a playmaker forces Besser or Pedersen into roles that don't suit them. You need a net crasher. JT Miller used to be that, and that's why it worked at first. Now, look. I still think you could, when you have players that are as talented as JT Miller, Elias Pettersson, and Brock Besser, there is still very much a chance that you can put those three guys together. And look, maybe JT Miller's game has developed and changed a little since the the first lotto line season, but there's still a very good chance that those three guys can figure it out and be a very productive line for you. But I also, even just beyond the specifics of exactly how it would look. I mean, aren't we kind of in, you know, break glass in case of emergency territory here, right? Like we heard from Boudreaux, they're not giving up on the season. They're not in, uh, we'll play out the string and see how things go here and, you know, get some of the young guys some time. They're treating every game as if it's basically an elimination game. Doesn't it kind of then point in the direction of using all of your options available to you? And I get it, the wrist injury and all of that. I just think you got to get Elias Pettersson in a position to be successful. If you're going to make this miracle run in the last 18 games, he needs to get hot again. And realistically, that's going to happen at center much more likely than it's going to happen with him at the wing. Yeah, I mean, I I obviously agree with you. Uh, Pettersson is a center, period. You know, that first game back from wrist injury, too, he played center against Detroit. He had six shots on goal, right? He won six of 11 draws. Since then, two games, he's got five shots on goal, right? And he hasn't taken a single draw. Now, I don't know how much that maybe suggests that he tried it out in the first game and couldn't do it, but, um, you know, the fact that he came back and didn't immediately move to wing, the way I sort of expected him to, because I saw Patan working on drills, uh, face-off drills in that morning skate that day, I sort of expected that Pedersen would be in a spot where they protected him from the face-off circle. They kind of didn't, and now they have again. So the whole thing feels a little discordant. On the lotto line, being passe, you know, I kind of see it. I, I fact is, is that they couldn't recapture it. They played a lot together early they in have. the season. And they, yep, they have. They couldn't, they couldn't recapture that magic that made them, you know, probably the best two-way line in the Western Conference in the 2019-20 season. That's a long time ago now, right? Like, that's a long time ago. And since then, that line just hasn't been able to figure it out. They haven't been the same imposing possession-driving line that they were their first year together. Um, you know, I, I think the way that this team is set up now, m- you know, more than moving Pedersen off of center, I think they're reluctant to move JT Miller off of center, particularly because of how reliant they've been on his individual performances to win games. And I, and I think that, too, is something that's really important to note, Right. As we've seen this team go on the run that they did under Boudreaux and then have, as we've watched it flag, you know, the most disconcerting part of it for me, 
Jamie, is that the wins haven't looked that different from the losses. You've just less of one guy taking the game over. You know, like, without stellar goaltending and three or four different guys, at you know, at least one of them, maybe two of them, raising their game and individually winning it, you just haven't had a lot of, like, teams or system wins from this team. And I think that's true all season. I think that dates back all season, which asks some pretty... Uh, poses some pretty difficult questions about the team itself, right? And and the roster construction and all of those topics that we love to hit. And you know, you know, we love to play the hits, Jamie. <laughs> Absolutely. The, but the the most recent stretch of success of consistent winning for this team, it was when they had JT Miller and Elias Pettersson both going right. Like that was kind of after they had the COVID. Uh, absences and the, and the tough ro- road trip through the Eastern Conference, and they were yeah. kind of scuffling a little bit. Then what happened is JT Miller was on that that incredible heater, which he's still on to a certain extent, and Elias Pettersson was playing his best hockey of the season. And you're right, all of a sudden, just having that one other high-level star player consistently going made such a difference. And now we're basically back to it's JT Miller and it's Thatcher Demko. And Bo Horvat's had his nights here or there, but without Elias Pettersson bringing that, you know, consistently star level impact that he was for, I don't know, six weeks there, two months, whatever you want to call it. You're right. If it's, if it's not one of those two guys putting on the Cape and leading the team to victory, there's not a lot else to, for this team to hang their hat on at the moment. So that is an interesting point. You know, it's, I'm looking at it from the perspective of getting Elias Pettersson going, which I absolutely think they need to do. And ideally you would like him to finish the season really strong and go into the summer uh, feeling really great about himself going into next season too, but from the coach's perspective, this might just be don't upset the apple cart with JT Miller, right? Hey, if he's if he's going well, don't do anything to throw him off because as we have seen, their best chance for winning games right now is Thatcher Demko playing really well and JT Miller doing something special too. Yeah, and you know it's hard to understate how much I think the absence, the the Pedersen absence, hurt this team, right? If you look at the homestand. Uh, as a whole, right? As the seven games, you know, you'll see that Pedersen's underlying numbers are really strong, like generally, um, you know, not quite at the level of the JT Miller line, but but sort of up there. They're, they're certainly better than most Canucks players. However, one goal for five against five on five with Pedersen on the ice. And obviously he missed a couple games and since returning, I mean, that's, that's where the Canucks really are struggling. And more than that, 2.17 on ice shooting percentage, right? We know when Pedersen is on, he bends or at least defies gravity in that instance, right? We see the conversion rate and it looks imperious. And that has sort of not been there both right before he left the lineup and since his return. And that always is a is a troubling sign. Like that and and whether or not he's drawing penalties, those are sort of the canaries in the coal mine to monitor in terms of Pedersen's overall effectiveness. Well, I think, I think, sorry, sorry, you you and I have talked about this, right? That this is a, a shooting and save percentage driven team, uh, more of a puck possession driven team. Right. But as you said, (laughs) which by the way, which, by the way, translates into not a very good. Team. Sure, right? Like that's not that's not <laughs> ideal. That's not how cup, most cup contenders are uh, are built, any, right? Any yeah. cup contender. So, but if even looking at that team as you know, looking at that route, controlling and beating the odds on save percentage and shooting percentage, well, 
You need Thatcher Demko to be in his peak form, which he, he's been very good, but he hasn't necessarily been in his peak form, I think in large part because of the workload he's shouldered recently. And you need all of your finishers to be playing up to that level at least somewhat regularly. And again, it's really only been JT Miller that's doing that. Horvat had that nice hot streak as well, but we haven't seen it from Elias Pettersson, as you pointed out, with the on-ice shooting percentage, which is something he needs. You know, normally you look at that and you kind of say, oh, that's bad luck, it'll turn around, and it will for Elias Pettersson, but... When that's the kind of tentpole of your game, you notice it so much more, and it's harder to kind of shrug and chalk it up to bad luck. And I would put Brock Besser in that as well, right? Like, Brock Besser needs to show us a little bit more consistently that he still has that finishing ability, that ability to, as you said, defy gravity where his shooting percentage is concerned. That's the kind of theory underlying this team. And right now, I think recently, we've been seeing what it looks like when the percentages dips for them for any sort of uh, consistent stretch. Well, and so to go back to the homestand as a whole and like where the Canucks sprung a leak, right? The number one reason that I'd put on the Canucks springing a leak while they were were on that seven game homestand, the reason they were submarined, or, or at least one of the biggest reasons for me, is the play of that Myers, Oliver Ekman Larson top pair. And I want to be very careful about how I talk about this because this is not criticism of a pair of players who have been an absolute linchpin of the Boudreaux, like of the post Boudreaux success that this team has had. But I'm, I mean, with Oliver Ekman Larson on the ice during that homestand, the Canucks were outshot by 28 in 128 minutes. Like that's not going to get it done. Uh, Myers, the numbers 19, they were outscored by five, five on five with Myers on the ice uh, by three with Oliver Ekman Larson on the ice and the expected goals numbers, 40.9% for Myers, 38.6% for Oliver Ekman Larson. Like the, the the fact that that pair was unable to continue with their form and granted I think OEL's uh you know injury status or whatever he's battling through is is probably the the headline of that story. Nonetheless, what has punctured the Boudreaux bump more than anything else for me it's the play of that top pair and the fact that the Canucks don't have now you know this top pair that's coming out and playing tough comp and coming out you know modestly ahead uh, in terms of shot attempts in terms of quality chances in big minutes like that is undone the logic of this team winning on a knife's edge the way they had uh, under Boudreaux and I, I think it's going to be a very difficult road trip unless that turns around quickly. Well, it's those numbers are pretty startling, and you just look at it. Who do they have on a back-to-back right now? It's Colorado, the best offensive team in the league. Minnesota, who has, in the Western Conference, the second most goals scored this year, right? So all you're, you're going into an extremely difficult matchup trying to contain two of the best offensive teams in the league, and as you said, you're doing it where all of a sudden there are major questions uh, have popped up about the defense, the defensive pair that was your shutdown pair that was eating heavy, heavy minutes against the best opposition on the other team. And if they're not able to turn that around, and I mean, if, if OEL is fighting something, if he is playing hurt, I don't necessarily like their chances to turn that around. You wonder what the likes of Nathan McKinnon and Kirill Kaprizov and some of the other high octane players are going up against tonight and tomorrow are going to be able to do to this team. Like that's a very, very daunting thought for the Canucks going into these two matchups. Well, not to mention that I watched the Avalanche work on their power play. <laughs> I watched the Avalanche work on their power play today at Morning Skate, and it's terrifying. Like, it's absolutely 
terrifying the way that they're able to move the puck even without checkers around. And then once they're pulling people out of position, I mean, it is just completely absurd. Like, they are so loaded. And and you're going to see, you know, Valerie Nachushkin at the net front. He is a giant human being. Giant. And then you've got Nazem Kadri, one of the best bumper players in the league. You've got Miko Rantanen because you can't go to the ball to ball arena in Denver, Colorado these days and not see an, uh, a wonderful playmaking big man <laughs> patrolling patrolling the floor. <laughs> Nathan McKinnon, we all know what he can do with that one timer, and he's on his one timer side. And then, oh yeah, Kale McCarr at the top uh, of that of that one three one, ludicrous. And we know that Vancouver has struggled on the power on the uh, to kill penalties. I was going to say, but to but, say the least, but the Canucks PK is fine, right? Like they should be able to hold up against that, right? No problem. Oh boy, you know, I, <laughs> I mean, I suppose we'll see. Um, you know, the pe- penalty kill hasn't been – I believe that the penalty kill has improved appreciably under Bruce Boudreaux uh, generally. Like, I think they've been far better, and they actually haven't been that bad of late. Like, they weren't – the penalty kill was not the reason this team lost the games that they lost at home for me. You know, you, you sort of look through, and it's only – like, they've only allowed five penalty goals uh, – five power play goals against in the last 10 games. That's great for this team. You know, I mean, that's outrageously good for a, for a team that spent much of the year in historic, like flirting with 70% kill rate and historically bad. So, you know, you, you take that and, and sort of, that's something you can build off of, but this is a huge test and it's the club's first test on the PK without their single best penalty killer in Tyler Mott, who's of course been traded. So yeah, that's another matchup in this game. Like the Avs power play is just an absolute buzzsaw. The Canucks are now going to be killing penalties without their ace in the hole in that spot. How does that look? It's something to watch for closely this evening. That is without Tyler Mott and also because they have gone away from using Oliver Ekman Larson in big minutes on the PK. And as you said, look, Quinn Hughes has stepped in and done an admirable job there. It hasn't completely tanked the, their penalty kill back to kind of early in the season numbers, but it does concern me going up against that power play, right? And not having Oliver Ekman Larson to really lean on as a rock on your PK. And then, as you said, of course, losing Tyler Mott. We'll see who they plug in, who steps up and takes some of those minutes. But he had been their best penalty killer, and that's going to be a major blow uh, going into a game against, as you said, one of the most terrifying and talented power plays in the league against the Colorado Avalanche. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Keep your thoughts coming in. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Now, I want to uh, bring our producer and board op, Chris Faber, into the conversation here. Of course, you hear Faber on Sportsnet 650, does great work covering the team at Canucks Army as well. The prospect guru, Faber, because we've got a lot of questions coming in, Drancer, about one of the Canucks kind of forgotten about until recently, European prospects, Linus Carlson. Linus Carlson having a very effective uh, season in Sweden, and now all of a sudden people are wondering, hey, could he be an option for the Canucks next year? Are they going to sign him to a deal? At least bring him over for training camp next year. So Faber... What can you tell us? What's your perspective on Linus Carlson and the season he's having right now? Yeah, I think it's it's really impressive to see him continue to grow year over year. And the thing that I like about the development over the past year is he's scoring at a higher rate in the SHL than he was in the Elsvenskan, which is the second division of Swedish hockey. 
one year to this past, like what he did last year compared to what he's doing now, he's scoring at a higher rate. So there's still improvements to his game. I think he's going to be a good fit out in Abbotsford. I think he will be like the trigger man on the power play. Uh, it's going to be interesting, and Drancer, love to get your opinion on this too, like the pace of play between a power play at the SHL <laughs> level compared to the AHL level. I think that it, you know, if you can do it at the SHL level, I'm pretty confident you can do it at the AHL level as well, and I think that's where he's going to be an immediate fit over here in North America. Yeah, and the club intends to sign him. I think that's going to well, – I don't think. That's going to happen. It's just a matter of when. Um, and what the uh, what the ELC looks like. Now, the thing I like about Linus Carlson is also the reason that I think he's been sort of a forgotten man until recently. And that is, you know, there's been major questions about Linus Carlson's fitness level and athleticism, right? His pace. Um, now, I always, like, I, I watched Nikola Jokic play last night. And I don't know if how how much people have read about Nikola Jokic, but like Nikola, the re- one of the big keys to unlocking Nikola Jokic's potential was explaining to him that he shouldn't be drinking like four liters of non-diet pop every day, right? Like he, he legitimately had all the talent in the world, but he didn't have an athlete's commitment or body. And as that adjusted, you know, as he be, you know, as he came over into North American professional basketball and they sort of changed that part of his game, he became an absolute stud player, like might be the NBA MVP this season. There's some stories like that if you look through, you know, the recent history of hockey. Frank Vetrano was was a guy like that. Uh, Dustin Bufflin, of course, famously. Um, you know, if you have talent, you can sort of be molded into an athlete. And, and Linus Carlson, there's no question, he's a rare talent. But I do think there's going to be a fair bit of player development work to do with him on, in terms of, uh, you know, upping that pace, uh, working on the skating, making sure his fitness levels are at the level that he can play a major role for the Canucks and Abbotsford next season, which I think is the plan and the hope. Um, you know, and I do think that'll happen. Um, while we're on the topic of Abbotsford, I do think that the Canucks would have strongly considered, if not for the injury, papering Niels Hoaglander down in addition to Vasily Podkolzin. Um, that, that's sort of what I understand. And I'm really curious, though, to see what Podkolzin can do at the American League level, like in a position where he's expected to drive and play on the power play and kill penalties, which, by the way, will be the plan for him once the Abbotsford Canucks make the um, Calder Cup playoffs, which they'll do. They've played fantastic hockey of late. Um, you know, and, and when Pod Colson goes down there, he's going to play in every situation and he's going to be counted on and challenged to be the man. Um, Faber, I'm just curious to get your thoughts on how his game will translate down there in a bigger role and, and how beneficial you think it might be for him. Yeah, I think it's going to be huge for him to get that opportunity. I mean, there's already going to be like a, a big influx of players coming back at the start of April. You have Justin Bailey sounding like he's getting closer. Uh, Guillaume Breeze, Ash, and Sautner. Like, they're almost gearing up with their own trade deadline for, for how good they've been playing over the past <laughs> right. two weeks. They're about to get even better. Then you throw Pod Colson's name into the mix. Like, this team that we talked about potentially being a team that could compete for the Calder Cup. And the start of the year probably worried people that had that take out there. But I think they're going to be really exciting, man. I think there's going to be a lot of really good hockey out in Abbotsford in April and May. But Pod Colson, like, he needs to come in and be the first unit power play guy, first out there on penalty kills, needs to be a leader, and I think he's going to fit in excellent. Like, the thing that Pod Colson's going to be able to do at that level is use the pace that he's been able to – kind of work with at the NHL level and then take that to the AHL and be a step ahead of everyone. 
right? Like he's going to mm-hmm. be able to be physical on the boards. He's going to be relied upon to be a hard four checker and be a leader. And that's the most exciting thing I'm looking forward to with Pod Coles in there is to get down there and go back to what he was like when he was sent down to the VHL last year or was playing in J20 leagues uh, and J20 tournaments as Russia. Like, Pod Colson is a natural-born leader. I remember talking to Dmitry Zlodiev about it, and he was just saying, like, I, I copied everything that Pod Colson did off the ice and on the ice because he was such a great leader. I'm hoping that we can see a little bit of that in the AHL. I know it's going to be kind of tough for him to come down and, like, immediately be a leader, but... He just feels like the type of player that might be able to do that. Now that he's a little bit more comfortable in North America and with Danila Klimovic being down there, a guy that you know has probably struggled quite a bit with the language barrier here in Abbotsford, I think that's going to be another boost as well. So a huge win-win in my eyes to get Pod Colson papered down to the AHL for a playoff run. And with Pod Colson, you know, 10th overall pick, but doesn't necessarily profile to have that kind of high-end point production upside, which a lot of picks in that range do. So for Pod Colson, the chance to add every extra facet and wrinkle to his game, right? To be a penalty killer, to be, you know, net front on the power play potentially, or in some role on the power play, to be the leader and the guy who's able to play those defensive minutes, if he is going to kind of reach his ultimate upside, he needs to add a lot of different different parts to his game and I think the chance to do it in the AHL playoffs is a really important one for him to kind of give maximum potential value to the Canucks to the NHL Canucks down the road well and he probably he's a player who probably would have benefited from spending two months down there anyway this year Uh, obviously this team couldn't afford that and his performance in the middle of the season didn't dictate it like didn't warrant it if he'd struggled the way he'd 10 games in games 20 through 40 I, I think that might have happened but but he was one of the most productive players in that stretch so it never did and I do think you've seen him sort of hit a bit of a wall in the last 20 games I don't know that we've seen as many you know of those loud moments it's pretty clear that his confidence hasn't been high I think getting the opportunity to do something that he probably in an ideal world and in a deeper organization would have gotten to do anyway this season I think that's all upside for the Canucks also I just want to comment on my uh, high hopes for the Abbotsford Canucks being a Calder Cup uh, contender. You know, those were predicated in part on my belief that they'd have a first defense pair of Brad Hunt and, and Kyle Burrows. So <laughs> I'm not taking the L on that one, Faber. I'm not taking the L on that one. And then last thing, and I just want to get this in before we go, Jamie, and I know we're up against the clock, but TSN 650 contributor Frank Saravalli, also from Daily Faceoff, reporting that the NHL is in the process of voiding the Evgeny Dadnoff <laughs> trade. From Vegas to the uh, Anaheim Ducks, I've got some. I've got some ideas on some predatory um, approaches to benefit from this. We'll get into those tomorrow on. Canucks we will Tower. on on Sportsnet six fifty Drancer. We will get into those tomorrow on Canucks Hour. Uh, enjoy the game tonight, Drancer. You'll be there live. Of course, you can hear it here on Sportsnet six fifty Canucks versus the Avalanche at six thirty tonight. Uh, the People Show, Bick and Randeep, up next on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet six fifty.